right as I, in the, during the interview process, they published their first proof of concept data in flu vaccines in humans. I was like, okay, this is amazing. And I was like, it's still maybe not going to work, but it's either going to be unbelievably huge or it's going to flame out and burn in just as catastrophic style. And I was like, look, the people are exciting. The idea is really amazing. And, you know, why not take a risk? With broad interests ranging from chemistry to international development, Drew Nathanson hopped from random consulting job to another, not necessarily feeling the right fit. It wasn't until an epiphany on an island hilltop that he knew that delivering preventative medicine would be the way to marry the two. Find out how focusing on the impact you want to have and letting interests collide can point to the path of making the world better on today's Roads Taken with me, Leslie Jennings Rowley. I'm here today with Drew Nathanson, and we are going to talk about roads that take you places that are healthy, maybe sometimes, and what health really means. So, uh, Drew, nice to have you with us. Happy to be here, Liz. So, Drew, I start this the same way every time. When we were in college, who were you? And when we were getting ready to leave, who did you think you would become? Hmm. Um, when I was in college, I was uh, kind of a lazy underachiever, and I had no idea what I wanted to become, except I wanted a job, and I wanted it to be kind of exciting. Yeah, but um, you say a lazy underachiever, but you didn't choose a major in basket weaving. You were a chemistry major, right? I was a chemistry major, and I think I got a history minor, but I'm not quite sure if I uh, I filled out the forms correctly. Um, <laughs> I had a fun time at Dartmouth and it was a really good experience, but um, I, I, I didn't pick up, a, I think, a bunch of lessons that people might have picked up earlier um, about, you know, just doing the homework and the problem sets and a whole bunch of other things. Like um, I was uh, roommates with Greg Jensen. Um, I think it was junior year, might have been junior, senior year. We both took differential equations. We both failed the first exam. And then I was like, oh, this is a problem. And I went in and, you know, sort of didn't change much what my behavior was. And Greg ended up getting an A in the class. I ended up failing the class. I had to redo it and stuff like that. And so it was interesting to, to learn to say, okay, well, you know, some people can adjust. And I wasn't quite at the maturity level to adjust sort of what I was doing. I was uh, doing what worked in high school. So, yeah. Well, I will say you either faked it really well or there were other things that paved your path well for you because you did get a first job and it might not have been the right fit, but what was your first path off of the Hanover plane? So I ended up interviewing with a guy who was, uh, he founded a small consulting company. He was a uh, Dartmouth dropout of all things. And he had this vision for, you know, this company that was going to grow and it was the tech space and it was 96 and he was quite exciting. And I, I, I looked and I got a, a couple other consulting jobs at bigger firms. And I was like, well, this guy seems kind of energetic and exciting and stuff like that. And um, it was technology consulting. And uh, it was called originally the Council Group because he was a guy named Frank Seldorf and Council. Uh, and then um, the Internet page happened and we got in and we were one of the big tech consultancies for a while called Breakaway Solutions. And it was really, really interesting. I was a 32nd employee. We grew to up over a thousand uh, and went out of business relatively quickly after that. And so it was, uh, <laughs> it was a really fascinating period. I, I learned a lot. I found out I'm not a very good technology consultant, but, you know, good enough to talk strategy and things like that. And uh, it was a really 
interesting experience and um, in a certain way uh, making a lot of money through the IPO and then basically losing all of it and going on unemployment was a really good lesson for me. So uh, it was uh, a huge amount of fun. I got a very nice sports car out of it that I ended up having to sell, but um, yeah, it was um, it was really interesting to see sort of technology and what was happening and how businesses should and shouldn't be run. And uh, it, it was very, very cool. And um, I learned a lot and being on unemployment also taught me a bunch. And then um, I ended up getting to go to grad school. A friend of mine back from junior high school had gone to this program at Johns Hopkins SICE. And he told me about it. I said, it was great. And I looked at it and there's one way you could spend a year in Italy at doing it. And I was like, okay, this is could be fun. And I'm like, even if it doesn't help me get a better job, spending a year of my life in Italy going to school cannot be a bad situation. And I ended up doing it, and it was phenomenal. I got to study uh, European economics and politics and history and all sorts of really fun and interesting stuff. And in Italy, and yeah, it was a great amount of friends. And then I, I spent the summer, um, and that was a really formative summer, working as a chef on Elba for a professor who had this beautiful, like, farmhouse on the island of Elba. And so there were three students that he hired every summer. One was to, to be the chef, one was to be the gardener, one was to be the maid. And it was like working for your cranky old grandfather. And it was really interesting. And, you know, having the garden was beautiful. And I cooked some really amazing things. And it was an interesting experience. He was absolutely awful to work for, though. Uh, <laughs> and it made me realize I didn't want to be a chef because, like, I loved cooking, but I like to cook for fun, and cooking for work was uh, not great. But um, one of the nice things about that was I still didn't know quite what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't like technology. My dad had was a doctor. Um, my grandfather was a doctor. And, you know, I was like, okay, I, I think healthcare seems to be an interesting space, but, you know, is there something I can do more than that or whatever? And so I got to take these long walks up these mountain paths in Elba near the farmhouse and, you know, take some time and think. And so I was listening to sort of like I had an old Apple iPod that I'd listened to while walking. It made me think. And one time I was walking up and I was like, going, OK, what do I want to do with my life? And I was like, I want to make the world better. And I was like, what would make the world better? And I was like, well, you know, healthcare and medicine makes the world better. This seems to be a good thing. And I said, well, well I'm studying economics and history and politics. And I was like, is there a better way of doing it and stuff like that? And I was like, OK, well, you know, preventative medicine, keeping people healthy or making them healthier as opposed to waiting until they're sick, that might be a really good way to approach. And I was like, okay, this sounds like something really exciting. And I was just really, I walked down and I just, you know, this feeling of amazing relief and excitement, having walked down up this mountain and figured out, okay, this is kind of what I want to do. And then I was like, how the heck do I do it? And I didn't have a very good idea. But um, when I went back to DC for my second year of classes, there were a couple of opportunities to study international health and economics. They have a, uh, the Hopkins, of course, is a great medical school, but they also have a very good school of public health. And there's some professors who do some joint stuff. And so I started to do that and I applied for a bunch of internships. And I got one at a think tank called CSIS, uh, which was through Center for International Studies. And it was a very OK internship, but there's some very, very nice people. But I, I didn't get to do that much. But I got waitlisted for an internship at the Gates Foundation. Um, and so it actually ended up working out really well. I didn't get the internship at the first part, but I had a good interview and they said they liked me and they said it couldn't fit me in this time. But how about they fit me in for the uh, spring term? I was like, that's great. I got an internship now. I'll get a, an internship there. And it was what an amazing organization to work for. It was really, really cool. And I, um, 
was uh, the DCO office was their policy office and some exciting, amazing people to work for. And I was doing a little bit with education, helping out. And then I ended up getting more into the public health aspects of things. And there was a guy named Raj Shaw, who's now head of the Rockefeller, but um, was prior to that, was head of USAID. And prior to that was at the Gates Foundation. And just this tremendously inspiring and energetic visionary guy who was not super well organized. And so I, I got a, a job sort of helping him out with this big project where he was trying to create this new international financing mechanism to help fund vaccinations. And so it was this really cool project. There was something that the EU created, a special law that allowed them to create sort of long-term commitments as an off-balance sheet commitment. So it meant that it wasn't going to be counted against debt if they partnered up with a bunch of different countries. And so what happens was there's the idea that all these European governments would get together, create this sort of promise. It wouldn't be counted as government debt. And then they could actually um, securitize that on the bond market. And it would allow you to bring money in to spend on vaccination. Because the idea was if you vaccinate people earlier, all of a sudden you can, you know, get the health effects and then the economic benefits of those health effects much earlier. And it would have a really big developmental effect. And so it was so exciting. And I, we were working with the British government, we were working with some of the Scandinavian governments, French government, um, the two of the coolest business meetings I've ever been in my life. I got to go to one in the Vatican, which was just amazing. Like, you know, business meeting in the Vatican, meeting with the cardinals and stuff like that. And it was oh my God. really cool. And um, and then uh, we got to meet, the French government has some of the most amazing restaurants in there. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, it was, the just, it was a fascinating experience. And I was using my European studies stuff to do health-related work. And so it ended up being fantastic. And um, I got an opportunity to expand that for a couple of months after graduation as a, an advisor. But what was really interesting was I was like, okay, I love this and I think it's really cool. But I was like, maybe I'd have more impact if I could do it from the business side. And a lot of people at the Gates Foundation had been at McKinsey before. And it was much more traditional to be at McKinsey and then go to the Gates Foundation. And they're like, well, maybe it might be a good fit for you. And so I got some recommendations. And then um, uh, Jim Brennan, put my resume in for the New Jersey office and I got an interview and I got to join McKinsey for a couple of years to do pharmaceutical consulting. And man, that was a horrible experience. <laughs> you hadn't learned your lesson the first time. Yeah, and, but yeah, I, this was, it was really useful. I, like I joke about McKinsey, like, like I was not a very good consultant. I learned a lot of information and I met my wife. And so it like, it, and I got, got, got my current job because it was, all because of the McKinsey stuff. So I can't complain too much, but just the atmosphere at McKinsey, it, it didn't sit super well with me. I, I think it's a, it's a really good place for uh, slightly insecure overachievers. And, uh, you know, I had the insecure part down okay, but it wasn't so good on the overachieving. There are a couple of programs and projects which I did really well at. And so I, I got a sense of things I did well at and things I just didn't do well at. And I'm really not good at massively detail-oriented projects. And so that was the I had done a project right before, which was sort of a private equity assessment of, you know, different drugs. And I was like, that was great for me. And then I got in for when um, I think it was uh, J&J acquired Pfizer's consumer health business, Listerine and all those products like that. And that integration there. And that was a project that basically knocked me out of McKinsey. And so it was a really good learning experience, but I you know, didn't fit, fit me well. And I happened to get lucky enough to get a role at Novartis Vaccines. And I'd always been interested in, again, preventing people from getting sick and the work of the Gates Foundation. So, you know, that really fit well with me. And the idea of a chance to make vaccines was great. And so I went there and I got to do a couple of projects and I learned a bit about the, the business. And I realized I, 
I'm not really a scientist and I'm not a physician, but I really like hanging out with them. And so I got a chance to do sort of strategy and operations for the, the research group. And so I got exposure to all the new vaccine development and all the cool technologies and seeing what was being happening and how creative science was being done. And I was helping out, you know, help provide the infrastructure in terms of, you know, setting things up. And we set up a large facility in Cambridge and it was really cool. And we set up this organization that, you know, help, uh, they had this tremendously productive pipeline and really smart people and, you know, helping facilitate, make their lives better. And it was really cool. Set up the facility in Cambridge. And then my wife is originally from China, even though I, we, we met in, Canada while they're both living in New York. And so the opportunity came to set up a research facility in China. And so we went there and that was really exciting. And my twins were born there. And, you know, we got to do a whole bunch of partnerships with a, a bunch of different laboratories. We actually visited the Wuhan Institute of Virology at oh, BSL facility. It. And it was, uh, it was really interesting. They're really nice people. And I'm so not surprised about what's happening in the new is so uh, it was a really interesting thing we, we made some cool partnerships and then due to some you know financial issues and management uh, of the overall vaccines business they needed to shut down the china facility so i set up this facility and research facility and then i shut down the research facility and uh, while i was doing that i was sort of looking for my next role or job because i was going to come back and you know somebody had filled my old role and you know what was i going to do and i had an opportunity to run a strategy session for the head of marketing and I think a few other people on what opportunities were in the China business and things like that. And I did a good job on that. So she liked me and uh, recommended me up for a position that I ended up eventually going. And that ended up getting into my sort of uh, program leadership of the vaccines. I was a, sort of a, a junior program leader for a cool meningitis vaccine. And then they gave me another one to do that was already approved for life cycle management over time. And I was really excited and it was having a lot of fun at Novartis. And then they sold their vaccines business to GSK. And yeah. Yeah. And then GSK said, we don't know where we're going to put our research facility, but it's not going to be Cambridge. And that was like the second day uh, of the the, the acquisition. And GSK, I don't think was quite used to the sort of the talent space in, in Cambridge. Uh, and my wife made the, the joke. She's like, what, you can't get another biotech job in Cambridge? You know, and, and so I, I, I turned around and got a job actually at the part of the business at Novartis that wasn't being sold. But like GSK lost 90 percent of the talent because they could just yeah. turn around and get jobs in Cambridge. Uh, so it was interesting. And then I got to oversee an influenza vaccine. This was acquired by an Australian company called um, CSL, which renamed their the Novartis food business uh, Securus. And, they're a fascinating company, one of the leading companies in Australia. Because the flu business had to be divested for antitrust reasons, they were able to buy it for pennies on the dollar. And so they were really smart business people, and I got a chance to see how they worked. And it was a, a well-run business. It was really cool, and I got to oversee the approval of the first um, adjuvanted flu vaccine in the U.S., flu ad for the elderly, and then uh, flu cell vax tetravalent was another vaccine I got to see the approval for. And, was responsible for. And those were two big innovative flu vaccines. And it was really exciting. And then again, the CSL people who became Securus, really good business people, but they weren't terribly interested in innovation. They had these great products and they were going to you know, cut costs and make a lot of money selling it, which was, I think, a really good business decision. But for what I wanted to do for innovative vaccines, I ended up looking for another role. And I joined a, a biotech called uh, Genosha. And uh, I worked on a really cool therapeutic herpes vaccine which had really interesting clinical data. And we uh, went through this whole process and we got through 
this big pivotal end of phase two meeting and they gave us a pathway to licensure for it. And we weren't able to raise money for the um, phase three trials. And I had gotten a call from a random headhunter who said, hey, I was really exciting role and stuff like that. And I was like, I don't know. I kind of like my company and I'm enjoying it. But I was like, oh, I talked to these people and I happened to be Moderna and they were looking for somebody to lead their Zika vaccine program. And I mm-hmm. started doing research. I'm like, oh, wow, this technology is amazing. And we'd done some stuff with self-replicating mRNA at uh, Novartis. And so I, I knew the technology and was aware of it. And so I was like, OK, this is really cool, but I'm not sure. I don't know if it'll work or not. And then right as I, in the, during the interview process, they published their first proof of concept data in flu vaccines in humans. I was like, OK, this is amazing. And I was like, it's still maybe not going to work, but it's either going to be unbelievably huge or it's going to flame out and burn in just as catastrophic style. And I was like, oh, the people are exciting. The idea is really amazing. And, and, you know, why not take a risk? And so I ended up joining and it's been a phenomenal roller coaster of a ride. I started for the Zika program. Um, we had some challenges for that. Uh, we ended up coming up with a product that was 20 times more immunogenic than the product that was in the, the, the clinic. And so we went back to the development board and that product program was handed off to a different program leader, Hamilton Bennett, who actually ended up becoming the uh, program leader for our COVID vaccine. And so she was awesome, but I got a chance to oversee our cytomegalovirus vaccine. And so CMV, cytomegalovirus, is the leading infectious cause of birth defects, both in the U.S. and in the world globally. It's not a virus that a lot of people have heard about, but the Institute of Medicine identified it uh, in 2000 as a really key area for vaccine needs because um, these brief birth defects are the most common are sort of hearing loss, but you can get microcephaly, you can get all sorts of horrible and difficult, you know, brain damage and uh, learning disabilities and, and, and other challenges. And so these families get blindsided about it because most of them aren't even aware about this virus until their baby is put in their arms at birth and, you know, you know something's wrong. And so I was just excited and inspired to get a chance to, to work on this vaccine. And our technology allowed us to do things that never could have been done before. You know, there have been a bunch of attempts at a CMV vaccine before, and the technology just wasn't there to, to make the best one. And the mRNA technology allows us to create a vaccine that's better able to represent the natural formation of the virus to stimulate an immune response that's much greater than any vaccine that we've seen before for this. And so it's just similar to the technology that allowed us to create a COVID vaccine so quickly because we're able to to take the natural sequences and express them in the form that a virus would naturally express them. You um, have these uh, antigen proteins that, that form up the same way. And so they present to the immune system the same way that the virus would but because you don't have the rest of the junk about the virus, which usually is used to sort of block the immune system, you get this really clear and clean immune signal. And so uh, it's exciting for our CMV vaccine as we're getting ready to phase three trial. It was really exciting for our COVID vaccine because, uh, I mean, it ended up nobody expected that, you know, these vaccines would be 94, 95% effective right from the start. But um, it's uh, been a, sort of an amazing transformational role. And I, I can't say enough about the leadership of the company. Uh, Stefan Bonsell is just a phenomenal visionary CEO. He's really hard and really smart, but data-driven and pushing and visionary. And you could see at the beginning of 2020, you know, where, oh, there's some news about this virus and stuff and things like that. And he had called up the people in our research group and said, get on this and work on this and, you know, push push, push, push. And so, you know, we're working on a candidate before it even became big news in January and, you know, had 
42 days later, something in the clinic. And um, if we had been a bit more familiar with the process, we probably could have moved a bit faster because we would have made our phase one trial bigger and then could have gone right into phase three. You know, it worked out the way it, it did, but um, it's just been exciting. Yeah. Well, I would say that's a far cry from lazy underachiever. I wanted to work on it, but I, 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 it took me a while. A lot of luck <laughs> and a lot of sort of learning and also finding, you know, a space that fit me. Uh, again, like my current role happens to fit my personality well. I'm curious. I like to read about a lot of different things. I get bored with very small details, but I really like the big picture and trying to work people together. And so it ended up, you know, it took a long time of A, working on being lazy, which I still haven't conquered, but I'm getting better at it and being able to say, okay, what level of detail attention is required? And then also just, you know, you have to find something that fits you. I mean, I've tried a lot of roles that were not great fits and, you know, you can sort of power through them, but it's much, much harder and less pleasant work than something that you actually, you know, naturally enjoy and are reasonably good at. Yeah. Well, I think you also, you did the big picture work. I mean, it took an epiphany on a mountaintop, right? To give you the direction. And then you started feeding that direction into the things that you had already lined up. But then it takes that insight of, I'm not good at the details. I don't want to do the details. How do I build the role or find the role that can put those things aside or or minimize that and and give me the the kinds of things that really fire me up. I think that's you've you've done that really well, it sounds like finally. Lucky. It took a while, but yeah, that was great. Yeah. Well, Drew, thank you so much for sharing the story. It sounds like, I mean, what a time to be in this kind of work, but exciting. And if people could see the smile that I'm seeing, um, it seems like the right fit for right now. So thanks. Thanks again for sharing. That was Drew Nathanson, a program executive at Moderna Therapeutics, where he's led clinical developments of their Zika vaccine, as well as cytomegalovirus, or CMV. Every week, I talk with classmates like Drew about the ways they're making the world a little bit better. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts or at roadstakenshow.com to hear me, Leslie Jennings Rowley, talk to them on the next episodes of Roads Taken.